I am the greatest. That's what Muhammad Ali uh, used to say. And now uh, Usain Bolt has joined the club. Uh, But the book of Hebrews really is about who is the greatest. Is it Jesus or is it someone else? Is it Jesus or is it Moses or is it the high priest or is it one of the heroes of the past? This letter that we're looking at was written to to settle uh, that for the readers. Now, as we'd have heard in the video before, uh, we don't know much about the author of uh, the book of Hebrews. We don't know much about the recipients. There's all sorts of different ideas about who wrote it. And there's all sorts of ideas as well about who received it. But it seems as though uh, they were Jewish Christians uh, who had received this letter. But more than that, they were round-the-block Christians. Round-the-block Christians, really. They were seasoned believers. They believed quite a while ago. And they'd had some knocks. They'd done some rounds in the ring of life in their Christian experience. They'd faced hardships. They'd had their stuff confiscated. They suffered uh, division and persecution from people around them. These were round-the-block Christians that the author is writing to. Now, as we look at a passage like Hebrews uh, 1 to 4, uh, 1, 1 to 4, there's a real temptation to think uh, that this is an evangelistic message, if you like, that this is something that's written to believers. And actually, as I was writing this, I thought oh, this would be really easy to give as an evangelistic sermon, as a gospel message. And if you're here this morning and you are exploring the Christian faith, I'm sure it will be really, really helpful. But primarily, this wasn't written to unbelievers, but to believers. And it wasn't written even to new believers. It was written to believers who've been around the block a few times. And yet, they were tempted to jack it all in. Perhaps not ditch religion altogether, but go back into Judaism. Jesus could still be an important figure, but maybe just a little less intense. Maybe just a little less persecution they get, and a little less ridicule. And it's a surprise in a way that many of them could feel like that. But I imagine that many of us can sympathise with their feelings, at least from time to time. So what message will the author give to these seasoned Christians to stop them throwing their faith away? Well, we see, first of all, that Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God's final word. I'll read to you again Hebrews 1, uh, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. So we see here that it's all about Jesus. Uh, The author here sets up a contrast. This is what it was like in the past, before Jesus, and this is what it's like now. In the past, God spoke in all sorts of different ways. And if you've read much of the Old Testament, you can see there's all sorts of different ways uh, that God speaks. He speaks through angels. He speaks through visions. He even at one point speaks through a donkey. Uh, There are all sorts of various different ways that he speaks. And he does it at various times. If you like, we have a bit of a patchwork of prophets as we go through the Old Testament. Some here, some there. There are chunks of Israel's history when they have nobody. And then other times, it seems as though you can't move for prophets. So at various times, God has spoken. So the picture is of a scrapbook of prophecy. A picture here, some text there, some blank pages here. Sort of piecemeal revelation 
as God has been revealing himself through the Old Testament. But it's revelation nonetheless. God has spoken. So much of Hebrews, in fact, is taken up by showing us that God has spoken through those Old Testament passages. But in these last days, there's a contrast. Now that phrase is easy to skip, isn't it? In these last days, as though it's just saying now. But really what he means by that, in the last days, is the age of fulfilment. It's the age that was looked forward to in the Old Testament. The end of history. This is significantly different to the days that came before. And in this age, God has spoken to us by his son. Not by a a prophet, not by uh, a vision, if you like. He's spoken to us by his son. He's no mere messenger boy, if you like. It would be a bit like uh, the difference if uh, you imagine next week for our 100th anniversary, uh, the Queen sent a messenger to say congratulations on 100 years. That would be pretty exciting, wouldn't it? That would be uh, probably make our day, make the papers. Could you imagine, though, if the Queen sent her son, if the Queen sent Prince Charles to come and congratulate us on our 100th anniversary? That would be something spectacular, wouldn't it? So he's not just sent anybody, he sent his son. And that means there's been a change. No piecemeal revelation. Complete revelation. God's final word. And the contrast here is to show us the superiority of our situation now. We don't have a patchwork of prophets. We have God's final ultimate revelation. We have something far, far greater than what they had in the Old Testament. And it's weird, but actually our temptation sometimes is to think that what we have now is something less than they had then. And the temptation is to think, well, he's God's final word. Well, does God speak now at all if we're saying that Jesus is his final word? Does God speak now? Absolutely, God speaks. But he speaks through what he's already revealed. He speaks through his son. He speaks by his revelation in the past. In fact, the key really is hearing what God is saying. And that's a big theme in Hebrews as well. So on the back of your sheets, you'll see there there's Hebrews 3, uh, verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, it goes on to say. But God is still speaking to us now, but he's speaking to us through what he said before. So the key is hearing. Now, it's not entirely clear-cut. After all, think about it. The the New Testament was written after Jesus' death and resurrection. The book of Hebrews itself is speaking to us in a new way, isn't it, about Jesus uh, and the fact that he come. But it isn't really saying something new in a way. It's God-ordained testimony to God's saving works in Christ. If you like what we have in the New Testament, what we have in Hebrews is God's authorised biography of his saving works in Christ. Really, if you think about it, it's an autobiography because God is writing it. God is writing about himself. So God's son comes to us clothed in the pages of scripture. That's how God speaks to us through his son now. But there can be discontentment, can't there, with God's final word. And sometimes that's a misunderstanding of the nature of the word and the work of the spirit. Uh, So the nature of the word, the word is there to bring us to Christ, actually. That's what we were singing uh, in the the children's song, wasn't it? Uh, Because in the Bible we meet Jesus. That's what the Bible is there for, to bring us Christ. But the work of the Spirit is linked too. The Spirit uh, doesn't just work in the speaking of the truth in the Bible. He doesn't just give us the words of Scripture. The Spirit works in our hearing as well, in the lives of a believer. So to give you an illustration, it's, it's a bit like... 
He doesn't send us, God doesn't send us a message in Morse code and then leave us to decipher it. God actually sits with us and works with us as we work out what God has said. Through his spirit, he lives in us as believers so that we can understand what he's saying to us. So he writes to us in the word and speaks to us, but he also helps us in our hearing. Now that often comes through hard work in understanding God's word, but the spirit helps us to do that. But another problem we can have with this is not uh, just the idea that it's um, discontentment with God's word, but there can be a lack of excitement at God's word. There's that hymn, isn't there? Um, there must be more than this. And you can sort of understand the, the, the feeling of that, can't you? Um, I know what that's getting at, but on the other hand, our ultimate spiritual experience is that God speaks and we listen. We meet with God as he reveals himself through his word. So let me give you an example. Moses, in the Old Testament, he asks to see God's glory. He wants to see God. He wants to meet with God. What does God do? This is God's response. Have a look on the back of your sheets. Exodus 34, 6 to 8. This is what God does in response to that. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But by no means will he clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Do you see that? Moses asked to see God. He asked to meet with God. What does God do? God speaks to him. God reveals himself to him in his word. Um, there's a book, another book by John Piper. Uh, this one isn't free at the back. This is my copy. Um, but he puts it really, really well uh, in this book, Why I Don't Desire God. He says, similarly, God revealed himself to the prophet Samuel by the word. First Samuel 3, 21 says, And the Lord appeared again at Silo, for the Lord revealed himself to Silo, at, at, to Samuel, by the word of the Lord. This is what we want as human beings. We want a revelation of God himself. We want to say with Moses, show us your glory. And indeed a time is coming when the glory that is to be revealed in us will make all the sufferings of this present time seem as nothing. But for now, in this age, God has ordained that primarily he reveals his glory to us by the word of the Lord. Hearing is the primary way of seeing in this age. What he's saying there is that our ultimate spiritual experience is to meet with God in his word. So if we feel that sense of there must be more than this, the answer is not to look elsewhere, but the answer could lie actually in our own hearts, uh, as we harden our hearts sometimes. Are you bored with meeting Jesus in the pages of scripture? Then bear in mind, actually, it could not be a problem with scripture, but it could be a problem uh, with you. Certainly if it's in your own personal reading, unless you're reading the Bible in Finnish or um, the original Wycliffe translation, you can't understand it. Actually, as we read his word, he meets with us. But it could be a preaching problem if we, if we struggle with sermons. All of us have had that experience, haven't we? Uh, of someone who can make living truth seem like dead words on a page. Who blunts the sword of the spirit to the extent that it doesn't reach into our hearts at all. But the word of God itself is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Where's that quote come from? Hebrews. So God has spoken. And that itself should be exciting beyond belief, shouldn't it? 
Think about it. Imagine people talk a lot about uh, aliens. I used to be into conspiracy theories and stuff when I was younger. And people used to get really excited that aliens were sending messages from, uh, you know, outer space. How much more exciting that the God of the universe who made outer space has sent us a message. It's amazing just that God has spoken. But God has spoken by his son. And that should blow our minds. He's not just sent a message. He sent himself. He's not just revealed information. He's revealed himself. And we meet him in his word. So Jesus is God's final word. Now the author of Hebrews will return to this theme of messages at the beginning of chapter 2. But before he does, he wants us to see afresh who this Jesus is that God is revealing himself through. He's no mere messenger boy. Jesus is God's greatest son. Verses 2 and 3. Let me read them to us. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus, though, is revealed as God's son. But what does it mean that Jesus is God's son? Well, as I said a few, uh, well, a few months ago now, Jesus stands in a long line of sons of God in the Bible. Adam is described as the son of God. Israel is described as the son of God. The Davidic kings are described as the son of God. And here in this age of fulfilment, he is the second Adam. He is the true Israelite. He is the new David. But more than that, he is the son. Now that word the isn't used uh, in the Greek. Uh, It just says son. But actually it's really clear from what follows that he has in mind the son, God the son, the second person of the Trinity. In other words, this is God himself. And we learn seven things about uh, the son in this passage that make that clear. The first thing we see is that he's the king to come. He's the heir of all things. And that's a reference really to Psalm 2. You'll see that on the back of your uh, sheets there, Psalm 2, verses 6 to 8. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The idea there that he's the heir of all things is really linked to the idea that he's the king that God has installed on Zion, the one who inherits everything. We often hear uh, things in films where you, uh, you, you get an old man saying, son, uh, one day all this will be yours, don't you? Well, in this case, that's true. And what's, what he's giving to him is the universe. Jesus is the ultimate VIP, the ultimate person to know. He's the king that was promised long ago in the Old Testament. So it's not Leonardo DiCaprio who's the king of the world. It's a Titanic reference if you've not seen it. It's Jesus who's the king of the world. He's the heir of everything. But not only is he the king of the world, he's the maker of the world. See that there? He was there at the beginning, creating all things. He's literally creator of the ages. So it's more than just creator of of the physical, if you like. It's the creator of time. It's the creator of time and space. So he's not just a create and go. God, actually, he's moulded and shaped the ages. And he's set them in motion. So he is creator. He is God, no mere prophet or teacher. 
He's the radiance of God's glory. It's like beams from the sun. That idea that, that Jesus is like the beams coming out from, uh, from the sun. Or the heat from a radiator, if you like. The glory of God glows through him. Uh, you can no more have the sun without heat than God without Jesus. That's really what it's saying here. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's also the exact imprint of God. The image there is a bit like a seal from a signet ring. Uh, so kings would have a signet ring that they would put in wax. And it would leave an imprint uh, of, of their, their seal. Like the impression in a mould. So his nature is God's nature. His character is God's character. And not just a little bit. It's not just like he's close to God. Actually, it's exact. He's the exact nature of God. He is God. He's upholder of God's world by his word. Not only did he create the world, he sustains the world. If Jesus willed for a second that the world didn't exist, it would stop. The world only continues to go because Jesus upholds it. How does he uphold it? He does it by his powerful word. Like father, like son. They both work through their word. So do not ignore the word of Jesus. More of this in chapter 2. He's also the maker of purification. Now it's easy to skim over this bit because it says having done this. But it's only after having done this that he can sit down. This was his big work. He made the world and he made purification. He's creator and he's redeemer of the world. There's a bit of play on words in the Greek there that he, he sort of washed down our sin and then he sat down. And this is a huge stream through the whole book of Hebrews, so uh, keep, keep looking at this as we come. But then seventhly and lastly, he's the priest to come. Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. And the image there is a priest, uh, the priest who is the forever priest. We read at the beginning, Psalm 110, verses 1 to 4, I'll read them again. But look out for that sitting down and priest imagery. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion his might, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see that image of being sat down at the right hand of God is actually supposed to bring to mind the idea of Jesus being that forever priest, uh, the one who was to come. Uh, so it's not just a random link here either, is it? Because actually Hebrews is going to pick up on Melchizedek in a big way. But he sits at the right hand of God, the position of favour, the position of authority. He's literally God's right hand man, if you like. And he's sat down because he's finished his work of making purification. And all these things make him superior to a prophet, superior to the angels, which is what it picks up on that last uh, verse there. He has the name Son of God. He is the greatest. But can you see as we look at those seven together that there's all sorts of things that hang together with these things, that, that show us even more of who Christ is? Do you see that it deals with the past, the present and the future? In the past, he created the world. In the present, he sustains the world. In the future, he's the heir of the world. This is why the world is here. That's how it's here. That's what it's there for. He's why we're here. How we're here and what we're here for. More of that tonight. But we also see here that he's the fulfiller of what God promised. 
He promised a prophet, but here he is even greater, the full revelation of God. He promised a priest, but here we have him greater, sat at the right hand of God. He promised a king, but he's greater, God's king, whom God has installed. And this all makes him the greatest. And if that wasn't enough, the structure hammers it home. So really, it works like this. If you see, there are links going into the middle. Uh, A bit like our series in Daniel that we saw. And right at the centre is there that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. In other words, he is God. There is literally no one greater. Jesus is not just another teacher in a line of teachers. Or a prophet in a line of prophets. For those tempted to fall back into a Christianity light, can you see how this is relevant? If Jesus is just another character in the Bible, if Jesus is just a moral teacher or a revered saint, then what you have isn't Christianity. It's nothing. A Jesus who is less than God is no Jesus at all. What we have in Christianity is the greatest figure in history, God himself. Why would you want to turn your back on him? There's literally no one greater you can follow. He is God's greatest son, God himself, and worthy of all our praise. So our last point is to put Jesus in his rightful place. Put Jesus in his rightful place. There's no direct application in this short little section. And part of our problem as human beings is that we we want the sort of do side of things, don't we? Give me something to do. But as we start this book, as we start this series, as we start this new chapter in the life of our church, we need to stop, first of all, and fix our eyes on Jesus. All our action and effort, all our striving and struggling will be pointless unless we have our eyes firmly fixed on him. And that's why this isn't an evangelistic message. Jesus is not someone that we glance to for our salvation and then look elsewhere to live. He is our life and we must keep our eyes firmly fixed on him. And Hebrews is going to help us do that. That's why I wanted to start with this uh, as a series of sermons as pastor. So we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But is there anything else we can take away from our passage? Well, two things. Firstly, thinking about the first point, how do we relate to this awesome Jesus? We've seen how amazing and great he is. Well, if he's God's final word, then we must listen to him. Just think about it. What does Jesus, what does God say as Jesus um, is shown in all his glory to his disciples during the transfiguration? God speaks from heaven. Does he say, this is my son, worship him? This is my son, praise him? This is my son, adore him? They're all good things. But no, he says, this is my son, listen to him. This is our relationship to God. God speaks, we listen. So are we listening to Christ in his word? Are we soaking ourselves in scripture as much as we can? Are we going to listen to God speak as we look through the book of Hebrews? If we don't, what we're really saying is that Jesus is not worth listening to. And a Jesus who's not worth listening to is not a real Jesus. Jesus was the most compelling person who ever lived. So we need to listen to him. And then thinking about our second point, we need a realignment of our minds. Jesus is the greatest. And we need to be reminded of that again and again. Why do we need to be reminded? Well, because life makes us forget, doesn't it? Because hardship makes us forgetful. 
We forget his worth and instead focus on ourselves. But he is worth not dropping. He is worth keeping going for. He is worth our everything. So we cannot drift back into a sub-Christianity. We cannot drift away into a less than Christian way of living. We need to have Jesus at the centre. We need to have Jesus at the top. So let's keep Jesus at the top. Because it's not Muhammad Ali or Usain Bolt, as much as they will stand up and say it, who are the greatest. It's Jesus who's the greatest. So as we go around the block again, maybe for the first time, and maybe for the umpteenth time, what we need to do is keep Jesus at the centre, living for him, listening to him, because he really is the greatest one that we could give our lives to.